millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we are exploring the extraordinary story of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbour on the 7th of December 1941. And to help me find out more I spoke with Mark Still a retired commander in the US Navy who studied at the Naval War College and has recently finished a 40-year career working in the intelligence community with tours on the faculty of the Naval War College, the Joint Staff and US Naval Ships. He is also the author of numerous works focusing on naval history, including the Imperial Japanese Navy in the Pacific War and, most recently, the United States Navy in World War II, from Pearl Harbor to Okinawa. And really, if there is anything you need to know about Pearl Harbor, well, Mark is the man. Before we go on to play the interview, let me add here that to go alongside this, we have created the most fabulous 3D animation exploring the Shokaku, one of the Japanese carriers involved in the attack. It really is worth watching, and you can find that on the Mariner's Mirror podcasts, YouTube and Facebook pages, And there will also be shorter clips on Twitter and Instagram. So do please take the time to check that out. But now to Pearl Harbor itself. If you haven't heard about it before, what you need to know is that this was a surprise attack launched by the Japanese against the American naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii before the formal declaration of war between the two nations. The Japanese goal was nothing less than to destroy the American Pacific Fleet. From six aircraft carriers, the Japanese launched 353 aircraft, including fighters, dive bombers and torpedo bombers, in two waves. Less than two hours later, every battleship in Pearl Harbor, the USS Arizona, Oklahoma, California, West Virginia, Utah, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Tennessee and Nevada, had all sustained significant damage. In all, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor crippled or destroyed nearly 20 American ships and more than 300 aeroplanes. Dry docks and airfields were also destroyed. 2,403 sailors, soldiers and civilians were killed and about 1,000 people wounded. 
But interestingly and importantly, the Japanese actually failed in their goal to cripple the Pacific Fleet. By the 1940s, battleships were no longer the most important vessel in the Navy as they had been in the previous war. Aircraft carriers and seaborne air power had now changed everything. And the Pacific Fleet's carriers were in fact away from Pearl Harbor on December the 7th. Moreover, for the first time in years of discussion and debate about America entering the war, popular opinion now dramatically swung towards joining the fight. The following day, America declared war on Japan, and three days later, America declared war on Germany. Here is Mark to tell us more. Mark, thank you very much for talking to me today. Sam, it's my pleasure. Now, let's start, I think, with um, the attack on Pearl Harbor. One of the things I'm interested in is whether the US Navy was expecting the kind of war that it ended up fighting. And did um, sort of Pearl Harbor really change their, their plans as much as plunge them into a war? Well, they certainly weren't expecting to fight the kind of war that that started right after Pearl Harbor, but they were planning beyond just the, the typical battleship duel, which both sides thought was going to decide the, the course of the war. So they were exploring various options with carrier strike groups in a very embryonic way. But then, of course, on this December 7th, everything changed, and they, they, they were forced to, to go to that, uh, that mode of warfare. And the battleships really were no factor for the duration of the war, at least the battleships that were caught in Pearl Harbor, because they were all very old. They couldn't keep up with the main fleet. And besides that, Nimitz didn't have enough supporting ships or oilers to even, uh, to even operate those. So, for example, at Midway, only six months after Pearl Harbor, uh, he chose not even to employ these slow battleships, even though he had rebuilt the battle line back up to seven battleships by that point. So um, when war broke out at Pearl Harbor, can you give us a, a sort of a, a taste of the position of the U.S. Navy and, and whether it had more battleships, more carriers? And how was it? How was it structured? Yeah, it was uh, the largest navy in the world. It rivaled the size of the Royal Navy. Both were about the same size, but the Americans were starting to churn out uh, ships that were funded back in 1938. So uh, it was a much larger navy than the Imperial Japanese Navy. But the problem was that the U.S. Navy had to posture a force both in the Pacific and in the Atlantic. And by the time of Pearl Harbor, it's, it's, it's uh, not well known, but a, a big chunk of the U.S. Navy was in the Atlantic uh, conducting so-called neutrality patrols in support of, of the Royal Navy. So they were, the USN was outnumbered in the Pacific uh, when the war started. And that was especially true in the uh, area of aviation. Uh, the Americans only had three fleet carriers in the Pacific. The Japanese had six fleet carriers and a, a small number, I think was three small uh, light carriers. So the Americans were outnumbered in the, uh, in the key area of carriers. And uh, their battle fleet was strong, it was nine ships in the Pacific. The Japanese only had 10, but there was a, you know, so that, that once again, they're outnumbered there by a small margin. And they were outnumbered as well in uh, heavy cruisers and light cruisers. So uh, that uh, changed quickly because after Pearl Harbor, the Americans did bring back a lot of the ships they had in the Atlantic fleet to the Pacific. But 
in all areas save uh, destroyers and, and submarines. The Americans were outnumbered in the Pacific at the start of the war. And what about um, actually the the difficulties of manning these ships? So yes, they were they were outnumbered, but I mean, were they also struggling to find the men necessary to to populate them? Uh, that was a big problem going forth into the war when the the tide of U.S. war production really kicked in. I mean, during the war, we all know that the U.S. produced an enormous number of ships, uh, which, you know, as a, as a side note, would have meant that even had the entire Pacific fleet present at Pearl Harbor been wiped out on 7 December, it really wouldn't have mattered because the, the flood of ships during the war was so tremendous. Uh, and just to point out a few of those numbers, uh, 17 fleet carriers, 9 light carriers, 75 escort carriers, 8 battleships, 12 large cruisers or heavy cruisers, So, uh, and plus, on, you know, hundreds of destroyers and submarines. So it, it wouldn't have mattered in the long run. But the, a bigger problem than building these ships was manning them, like you pointed out. And there was a big manpower crunch in the U.S. during the war as the U.S. had to ramp up a Navy and a large air force and still find enough people to to build a, a 90 division army to send overseas. So there was a real manpower crunch, uh, but that was resolved in the U.S. Navy. Its buildup was not curtailed by any great degree uh, from a lack of manpower. And on top of that, they were able to train these personnel to a very high level. So they did not sacrifice uh, qualitative uh, levels there and, and building this new navy. I was interested about that enormous shipbuilding program. Can you give us a sense of the the geography? Where did it happen in the states? Well, unlike today, where we have a, a mere handful of shipyards, uh, there were many major shipyards, most on the east coast, but there were also many on the west coast as well. So, uh, a lot of the navy yards, which were government owned and run, built large ships. There were a number of private builders, which did as well. And then on top of that, there were uh, dozens of shipyards which built non-naval ships or naval auxiliaries. So uh, it was just a tremendous effort. I mean, for example, there there were 2,600 Liberty ships built, uh, you know, uh, cheap to build, quick to build, uh, basic cargo ships built to a British design. But I mean, just thousands of ships were built during the war throughout the entire country. When it comes to the specialist vessels, whether it's a carrier or a, or a submarine, were those built, built in specialist yards or was that work also kind of farmed out all over the place? Uh, well, submarines were a different story because, as you point out, that, that takes a more specialised builder. Uh, the two main yards were the Electric Boat uh, Company, Electric Boat Yard, which is up in Connecticut, and also the Portsmouth Naval Yard. Uh, but there were others as well that built uh, submarines, but... Uh, there were just a handful of those builders. I think there was four or five, something like that. Uh, carriers, battleships, again, you have to have a more, a larger yard to build those kind of ships, and there weren't that many, and those were mainly in the East Coast. The Brooklyn Navy Yard, Newport News, uh, those were the big ones, but there, there were only a handful of those that could build the large ships. Let's um, just think about the Pacific Theater and, and the aftermath of um, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, how did they turn defense into attack? Uh, 
the biggest factor there was the aggressiveness of the the American Naval Officer Corps. So it, it's well known how aggressive the Japanese, uh, the typical Japanese Naval Officer was. That was his his hallmark. Uh, that was also equally true of the American Navy. So, uh, and that was epitomized by Nimitz and also at King, but by Admiral King, who was the Chief of Naval Operations and the and the the arbiter of worldwide naval operations for the USN. So. Uh, it's not perhaps quite as well known how aggressive these people were. So they were bound and determined, even after, after Pearl Harbor, to use what they had to strike back at the Japanese. And that's what drove these early operations. Immediately after Pearl Harbor, there were a number of carrier raids uh, in the Pacific. Uh, as early as May 1942, Nimitz had, had decided to uh, send his entire carrier force to the South Pacific, and two of those got to the Coral Sea in time to fight the battle and turn back the Japanese invasion there, but two more, the same two that were involved in the raid on Tokyo, they also were just a day or two away from getting involved in that battle as well. So uh, Nimitz was very aggressive. He was ready to send all four of his carriers down to the South Pacific to turn back that Japanese invasion. So. There were no battleships involved in these early U.S. Op offensive operations, but they did use their, their carrier forces very aggressively. And when the battleships did become involved, I, I'm, I'm guessing here around Guadalcanal and the Solomons, is that, is that correct? Uh, that's true. Now, he, he was pressured, Nimitz was pressured by King to use these battleships. King was a big gun guy at heart, uh, as, as were many of the U.S. admirals still at this point. And he wanted to know why wasn't Nimitz using these battleships? Uh, there were a number that were sunk or destroyed, uh, sunk or damaged at Pearl Harbor, and they weren't available. But as soon as uh, the U.S. Navy sent three of its uh, its best battleships, pre-war battleships, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, they had uh, a seven battleships ready to go, uh, and, and and King wanted them used. But Nimitz decided to, to never employ them in the front line in the South Pacific, even though things were very tough off Guadalcanal and attrition was very heavy. But late in the, in the campaign, he had no choice. So the first of the modern battleships were, were active in the South Pacific by that point. Uh, the North Carolina class, South Dakota class, in fact, there were two of those ready to go in November. And uh, Nimitz gave them to Halsey, who at that point was a South Pacific naval commander, overall commander, in fact, and he employed them at night in the confined waters of Guadalcanal in a very risky move in November and turned back the last Japanese uh, attempt to land a large number of troops on the island. So, yes, they were finally used uh, late in 1942. You mentioned that the, uh, the Americans uh, uh, shared and the American officers were, were as, as aggressive as the Japanese. Um, what particular aspects are there that, that highlights differences between the Japanese Navy and the US Navy? Uh, that's a great question. And there are so many areas where there were major differences. Should we break it down? Let's break it down into the uh, aircraft carriers. Uh, the aircraft carriers, well, there might be an example of, of where they were the most alike. I mean, both navies were uh, very aggressive in developing our aircraft carriers and naval aviation in general. Uh, both placed them not at the center of the fleet. Uh, so it's a, it's a myth to say, even though the Japanese 
struck Pearl Harbor with six fleet carriers in a very audacious operation, it's easy to say that they had by that time put the carrier at the center of naval operations. That's not true. They, they didn't do that really until late the Guadalcanal campaign and arg arguably not until Philippine Sea Battle in 1944. But, but both sides saw an important role for naval aviation. So, and both sides uh, built their carriers uh, for maximum offensive potential, which meant they had to carry a large air group. So unlike the Royal Navy who built uh, smaller carriers, not smaller, but they, they featured an armored deck, which meant that the hangar wasn't as large, so that meant they carried a small air group. The U.S. Navy and the Japanese Navy did not uh, see uh, a need for armored flight decks, so they were able to carry large air groups. The U.S. Uh, carried larger air groups because they, they employed the practice of a deck park. So they did not uh, put all their aircraft in the hangar deck. They had s some number on the flight deck in the hangar deck. The, the Japanese, uh, usually they had two hangar decks in their carriers, and they were able to put mo all their aircraft into the hangar deck. So they couldn't carry as many as, as an American carrier. But hmm. both sides were, were, were postured for maximum potential, uh, maximum offensive potential. Both sides developed modern uh, fighters for their aircraft carriers modern dive bombers and modern torpedo planes. So both sides had a balanced air group with fighters, torpedo aircraft and dive bombers, uh, and both trained intensively to operate those squadrons together in a coordinated attack. It turned out that the Japanese had trained harder, trained better. They were, they were just better at the tactical aspects of carrier warfare. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Uh, does that translate to um, destroyers and battleships as well? I certainly read about the Japanese being very good at night fighting much earlier than the Americans were. They were extremely good at night fighting uh, because they, they practiced this extensively for the previous 20 years. So both sides had these grandiose plans for a set-piece naval battle somewhere in the Western Pacific. And this was going to feature 
all force components so naval aviation submarines small craft like cruisers and destroyers and then finally the battleships would decide the battle in the climactic phase of the battle but the japanese were outnumbered so they you know by treaty obligation they had a smaller navy than the americans they were always looking for ways to get an edge and to make up that quanti that qu uh, quantitative difference so part of that was to resort to night fighting and they trained hard at that they were going to use their uh, destroyers and even their heavy crews with torpedoes to attack the american battle line at night and reduce the size of the battle line so when the big gun battle started the next day it would be a, a fair fight and the japanese would prevail and those tactics were were very transferable to the to second world war so as soon as they got involved against the u.s on guadalcanal those same tactics transferred directly so they were very good and their ships were maximized for their stories were for example they were maximized for offensive combat they were great torpedo boats they carried nine of these huge eight or nine depending on the, on the class of ship of the huge type 93 torpedo an excellent torpedo with a number of reloads so they were excellent torpedo boats the problem were they they weren't balanced ships and they weren't as good at, at anti-air warfare they weren't as good uh in anti-service warfare with with gun action uh so yes they trained hard at it they took it seriously and they were very good at it and were they equally as good at it underwater was the was there a significant torpedo threat from the submarines as well uh their submarine force was a great disappointment the japanese uh didn't have as many modern subs as the u.s navy at the start of the war but still they had a they had a a large number i think was in the area of 64-ish large fleet boats at the start of the war but they were trained and built and designed to support the fleet in this main battle we just talked about so part of their grandiose design for the set piece battle was for submarines to shadow the american battle fleet and reduce it with torpedo attacks as it approached this the area for the for the large-scale battle so that's how they were employed at the start of the war for the most part they were tasked to to attack u.s fleet units uh uh and and that role they did have success so they weren't as good as japanese had hoped but they did have a lot of success it's it's uh, they should get credit for what they did do they put several carriers out of the war during 1942 and of course at that time the carrier was the capital ship uh you know in both navies so japanese carriers sank the yorktown at midway they sank the wasp off guadalcanal and they hit the saratoga twice during 1942 and then put her out of action for most of the year so they did have some success uh but not the the kinds of success they should have had for the larger force as larger forces they had to employ and what about in terms of naval leadership is there a sense of um it say in, in the United States Navy staying at a certain kind of competence level or is there a very clear growth a very sort of clear peak over time of improvement uh, on the part of both navies I would say uh, for the Americans clearly there was a, a an upward trend in proficiency I mean the, the American naval officer as we discussed was very aggressive uh, even at the start of the war in almost all instances uh, they struggled uh, to to integrate technology at the start of the war 
they weren't really battle ready at the very start of the war, as was evident at Pearl Harbor. Uh, then at the first phases of the Guadalcanal campaign, again, they were not totally battle ready, as was shown at the Battle of Savo Island. So they struggled with uh, getting their fleet ready to fight and also trying to integrate technology at the same time while suffering heavy losses. So it did take a while for the U.S. to to master the art of night fighting. And of the five major service battles at Guadalcanal, all five were at night. So they had to learn the, the art of night fighting the hard way. Uh, carrier admirals were also struggling how to adapt uh, you know, carrier warfare, which was new for everybody. So overall, the Americans did well. I would say at Coral Sea, uh, quite well. They, they, they won that battle in spite of several errors, but at Midway, they did pull off the only carrier ambush of the entire war. Uh, there are two more battles at, at Guadal, two more carrier battles off Guadalcanal, and the Americans, strangely enough, did not fare as well in them. So even after Midway, when the Japanese lost four fleet carriers, they were still able to rebuild their carrier force and inflict a, a, a severe defeat on the American carrier fleet in October 42 off of Guadalcanal. The Japanese, though, they, they really did not have the same learning curve as the American admirals. Uh, led by Yamamoto, who is probably the most overrated admiral I can think of. Uh, everything he touched, every battle he managed, uh, turned into a debacle. Uh, Pearl Harbor, despite its its reputation as a glorious Japanese victory, was in fact uh, a, a severe, it, it, it did not achieve its goals. Uh, that's, we'll, we'll leave it at that for the time being. So that was a, that was not uh, as successful as, they, as, as he had hoped, certainly. Uh, he mismanaged the, the Coral Sea battle. He totally mismanaged the, the Midway battle. And then to top it off, uh, when he did have the, the chance to engage the Americans in a decisive battle off Guadalcanal for the span of six months and to defeat the U.S. Navy, he did not seize the opportunity. He's mismanaged that as well. So uh, the Japanese admirals were aggressive, uh, really not reckless, that that perhaps people think that they were reckless because they were so aggressive. That's just not the case. Uh, but they did not uh, ad adapt to technology and new tactics as easily as the Americans did. When it comes to the, the American Navy of the European theatre, is it helpful as seeing them as two completely separate navies or is there there's some some uh, help in actually considering them as one i'm always interested in this yeah that's that's probably true because they were doing different things uh so in, in the in the atlantic theater uh and obviously you must give the royal navy their due they they carried the burden there in that theater for for all points of the war uh but for the u.s navy the the atlantic theater came down to two things asw uh, which they got heavily involved in in 1942 on. Can you just explain what that is? Sorry, ASW for our listeners. Anti-submarine warfare against the U-boat threat. And of course, the Royal Navy led the way there. But the U.S. did play a role uh, because they, by 1943, uh, the, the benefit of U.S. naval production had begun to kick in. So, for example, there were 240 destroyer escorts operational in the Atlantic. 
uh, well, operational, most of them in the Atlantic. And uh, also the first escort carriers were, were operational at that point as well. So uh, they played an important role in 43 in the central Atlantic, clearing out or you know, uh, reducing the U-boat threat. And, and the, the escort carriers were a big part of that. But overall, the U.S. Navy uh, was a second-line player in the ASW campaign. I think the numbers are 785 U-boats were killed during the war of those the U.S. Navy accounted for about 177. So, yes, they were effective, but, uh, you know, the, the Royal Navy won that campaign, not the U.S. Navy. So, and the second kind of war that the U.S. Navy had to fight was the amphibious uh, war. And you would think that since they had, had, been, had been doing this in the in Pacific since August 1942, there'd be a lot of interplay and uh, exchange of ideas and tactics between the two theaters, and that apparently really wasn't the case to any great degree. So the U.S. Navy was uh, conducted several major amphibious operations during the war. The first one was Operation Torch in November 1942. It was a very large operation for the U.S. Navy. About 100 ships were involved. Uh, everything that wasn't off of Guadalcanal was involved in Operation Torch. Can you give us a rough idea about what happened with, with Operation Torch? Uh, yeah, the, the, the U.S. Navy uh, conducted a, one of the only transcontinental amphibious operations of the war in history, actually, uh, moving their fleet from the invasion fleet from Norfolk all the way to the North African coast, uh, landing on several uh, points along French North Africa. Uh, the French uh, did not roll over, so there was a severe fight. And at Casablanca, there was a major naval battle. Uh, the French employed uh, destroyers, a light cruiser. They had a, uh, a battleship in the harbor with 15-inch guns. It was immobile, but the guns were still operational. Uh, and there were also aircraft involved, French aircraft. So the U.S. Navy employed carriers. They had a modern battleship there, the Massachusetts, and a force of... Uh, destroyers and cruisers to turn back the French assault on the invasion force, which was actually a, a closer run thing than is, than is known. So the U.S. was successful in landing the invasion force, uh, but the, the French did, did have some opportunities to embarrass the Americans had, had things gone you know, a bit differently. Mm. And uh, were they involved in D-Day as well? Oh, and uh, yes. And of course, they had to work their way through the Mediterranean you know, at Sicily and also uh, Anzio to get to D-Day, <clears throat> excuse me, and the the force that they employed there, again, was quite large. Uh, uh, I think it was three battleships, a number of cruisers, 30-some destroyers, so quite large once again, but the Royal Navy was once again the predominant naval partner in the invasion. Uh, but the from, from as early as Sicily, the U.S. Uh, naval gunfire support tactics proved very successful. And, and, and the rapid-fire six-inch guns and the light cruisers were especially effective in providing effective naval gunfire support to the ground forces. So the U.S. Navy, uh, both in the Atlantic and later the Pacific, was very effective at providing naval gunfire support to troops ashore. Let's finish up by just going back to the beginning and thinking about Pearl Harbor again. What, you, what were the key lessons for the Navy after Pearl Harbor? Well, one thing was they had just had to be more battle-minded. So uh, 
that took a while because as, as we've already mentioned and talked about, the first couple of battles off of Guadalcanal did not go well either. So uh, that process began abruptly at Pearl Harbor on 7 December. Uh, and that's when naval aviation uh, assumed the forefront of fleet operations. So three carriers uh, in the Pacific Fleet uh, were, were present, but fortunately none of them were at Pearl Harbor on that day. So none were, were damaged or sunk during the attack. And they quickly brought another uh, one and later two more carriers from the Atlantic to the Pacific. So those six carriers, those fleet carriers carried uh, they they were the backbone of the U.S. Navy for all of 1942, and they provided cover for the first offensive in the South Pacific in August 1942. Uh, other lessons, though, they just had to uh, 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 adopt technology as quickly as possible. Radar was present uh, at Pearl Harbor, and it wasn't naval radar, but uh, there was there were there were radars on the island which did in fact detect the raid incoming those warnings were not utilized. Uh, so radar became a, a huge factor as the Guadalcanal campaign developed uh, during, during that six-month grinding battle of attrition off Guadalcanal. Hmm. What about things like damage control or the tactics of targeting aircraft from, from ships? Uh, damage control was, was an issue at Pearl Harbor. I mean, uh, that was part of not being battle-ready. So several of the battleships... Uh, Damage control was not handled well, and uh, that was a factor in their sinking. In fact, one of the battleships, uh, California, sank three days after the the attack due to progressive flooding. So that was purely a damage control issue. Uh, and the first part of the of the Guadalcanal campaign, in the first major battle uh, of Savo Island, four cruisers were lost. One was Australian, but the other three were American. And they were overwhelmed by a number of torpedoes and and uh, eight-inch shells, but damage control wasn't well done in that instance either. But I got, it it quickly was it uh, it was a it was a matter of emphasis for the U.S. Navy. Uh, the Japanese also, uh, you know, said they, you know, emphasized damage control, but they really didn't. They weren't as well organized, didn't take it as seriously as the Americans. So as the war progressed, the Americans were much more able to save their ships and even bring them back into action after heavy damage. The Japanese, as a matter of course, had a much larger problem in that area. Mark, thank you so much for talking to me today. I certainly know who to come back to if I have any more questions about the US Navy in the Second World War. Thank you for your time. All right, Sam, thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that and let me remind you again to check out the animation of the Shokaku and its role in Pearl Harbor and you can find that on Facebook, YouTube and Instagram. Please also, if you are not already a member, join the Society. You can find out everything you need to know about what we've been doing in over a century of supporting and publishing maritime history at snr.org.uk. Your annual subscription will help us continue in that goal. It will support this 
podcast, support the publication of the quarterly Mariner's Mirror Journal. It will go towards the preservation of our maritime past. And I hope you will all agree those are immensely worthwhile causes. So thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with some wonderful new material on the Titanic and the Great Eastern, two of the most extraordinary ships in all of maritime history. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.